welcome to episode 191 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I want to say thanks to our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Keela, Henry Wellington, Erin Lee, Diana Watson, Jessica Brandon, Heather Rollo, Terry and Amy, Zori Mobley, Shira Buis, Sarah Crawford and Amanda J. Jordan. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is Sleep Away Camp. Sleep Away Camp was released in 1983. It has 6.2 out of 10 on IMDb and 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Angela Baker, a shy, traumatised young girl, is sent to a summer camp with her cousin. Shortly after her arrival, anyone with sinister or less than honourable intentions towards her get their comeuppance. Um, <laughs> I, I don't even know where to start with this film. I'm going to be frank. I don't know where to start. So I watched this film with my friends Cass and Heidi. The reason we watched this film is because Cass and I had seen the ending, the clip of the ending, and we sort of quoted to each other all the time but we'd never seen the full film so we were like right let's finally we'll have a movie night we'll have some pizza we'll watch Sleepaway Camp the entire film of Sleepaway Camp is on YouTube if you want to watch it (laughs) this movie was crazy it was crazy and in the weirdest and most terrible possible way I honestly could do an entire podcast just about this film alone I honestly have not seen a film like it I don't know, I don't know if I can say ever, but definitely in a very long time. And to be really clear, there are moments in this film that are wildly problematic in numerous ways. I don't even know, I can't, I can't talk about why too much because I don't want to give away the ending. Um, And it is one of those films where you need to just not know what's going to happen and just go in and watch it sort of blind. Uh, There have been lots of academic discussions around this film. So I kind of did a bit of a deep dive into what people's thoughts were about this film after I'd watched it. And like I said, there's been a lot of academic discussion from the LGBT community about how it is actually, in hindsight, a very powerful piece. Um, It's definitely a film of its time. I'm just going to say that. It's definitely a film of its time. I don't for a second think... It's set out to make any bold political statements. (laughs) I don't think it it was intellectually driven enough to be able to do that. But kind of in a modern lens, you can look at it in that way. So, yeah, just wanted to put that out there. You know, I don't agree with some of the stuff that's levelled out in this film randomly. Because a lot of it doesn't make any sense. Uh, But I just just wanted to say that I'm aware there there are discussions around it being problematic. I howled laughing at this movie. Like I had tears streaming down my face. My stomach hurt. Like I I was like, oh dear God, this is outrageous. This film is outrageous. The first thing that I need to say about how brilliant this was is the outfits are top class. The outfits that the characters wear in this film are top class. For example... There are lots of sort of definitely men in their 30s who are posing as teenagers wearing teeny tiny crop tops 
and teeny tiny shorts. There is so much male nudity in this film that it actually, I was, by the end, I was like, hmm. There, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of homoeroticism going on here, which I don't, I don't think was intended to come out in this film, but it definitely comes out in spades. There's a lot of shots of scantily dressed young men wrestling, swimming naked. They tend to do a lot of penis grabbing to display their dominance. And I was like, what's going on here? What's happening? Because usually with slasher movies, particularly in the 80s, there, there was always breasts on show. Like it is, it is one of the things of 80s slasher movies is you've got breasts on show. There's not a breast to be seen in this film, which is a good thing because they're, they're meant to be teenagers. They're obviously generally much older people who are portraying teenagers, but it is, it's very much centered around male nudity, um, like that sort of macho kind of boys will be boys mentality and boys wrestling around. Very, very, very interesting to watch. The very beginning of the film like sets the tone for how problematic it's going to be. So there is a man who works in the kitchen called Artie who is watching all these teenage girls kind of running into camp all excitedly. And he literally says that he can't wait to get his hands on these girls. The other kitchen staff are like, you know, oh don't say that they're they're too young and he's like they're never too young and everyone laughs everyone's like oh you oh you oh you you big pedophile ha 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 and I was like oh this is very dark already this is incredibly dark is this setting the tone for the whole film like what is happening and it's really difficult to kind of separate this film into likes and dislikes because the things that I disliked about it are also the things that made it great like the acting is absolutely tragic it is truly terrible not from everybody there's some good performances but most of the acting is absolutely terrible like the story is the story is weak at best you know it's just sort of just a series of deaths intertwined with random footage of the kids at camp like there's a whole sequence of the kids just playing a baseball game doesn't add anything to the story it's just a lot of boys playing a baseball game that's it like it doesn't doesn't propel the story doesn't give any exposition it's just a load of kids playing a baseball game. So random. And there are some great deaths. Like I, I wouldn't necessarily call this film a slasher because there aren't really that many direct murders until the end. Like you've got uh, somebody being boiled in water, like scalded by water. You've got somebody being killed by bees. Like there's, there's, there is some interesting deaths. But there was one death in particular that seemed really out of step with the others. And it was genuinely genuinely even from a modern perspective shocking it was unpleasant it wasn't shown on screen but the implication was there it was violent it was brutal it was sexually aggressive like I was really really appalled by it I was like oh my god where did this come out of we've gone from sort of deaths that are removed from the person as in you know we've got some we got some we got some stabbings, we got some bees, we got some boiling, and then we've got this one death that's that's really out of sync with the others and just gruesome and violent and whoa, and I was really shocked by it. I will also say that the final climax of the of the film is actually genuinely frightening. It's frightening to watch, again, even from a modern perspective. Like it is a shocking moment, and I think that there are moments in this film, like I said, 
One of the deaths is really brutal. The ending is quite shocking. But fundamentally, as a whole, it's a fucking terrible film. (laughs) But I'm so torn because it was wildly entertaining to watch. And if you do end up watching it, like I said, it's available on YouTube to watch in its entirety. Please keep an eye out for the <laughs> the police officer with the fake moustache, the very obviously fake moustache at the end of the film. Because I, that was, that was the, that was the, that was the end for, I just, I was broken at that point watching this film. It, I mean, it's just, I can see why it was an instant cult classic. And generally, I don't really read the trivia around films, but I did for this film because I was so fascinated by the whole process. I was like, how did this get made? What? How? How did this happen? And the trivia is interesting. I would recommend having a read of the trivia if you do watch the watch the film on YouTube. You can get all the trivia on IMDb and there's some really interesting little like tidbits of information about the making of the film and about the characters in the film, etc., I mean, I don't really, I don't know what to give this film. Like, entertainment-wise, because it's so bad, it's definitely a five. Like, I enjoyed watching it so much. I laughed so much. I was shocked at various points. I Like, it's so of its time. It's so 80s. It's 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 very problematic at times. It's like, you're watching it as a modern audience going, are we really making that connection? Are we really saying that happened? So then that's why that happened. You know, I can't say any more than that. But for for actual film quality, it's like one or two stars maximum. But for entertainment quality, it's like five stars. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'll give it a three. Maybe I just go somewhere in the middle. Just, I just, I don't even know. I feel like I want this film to become a yearly tradition for me and my friends where we all sit down and watch Sleepaway Camp every year because it, it's it's just honestly one of the most bizarre things I've seen in a really long time. Which brings us to our story this week. And I have to say, I apologise for that film review being so rambly. It's the most rambly film review I've done in a really long time, but it's just honestly such a hard film to talk about. Our story this week was suggested on Instagram and it's kind of a story there's two different stories encapsulated into one in this Uh, if you were the person that suggested this story on Instagram thank you very much I thought I'd screenshot it but I hadn't so I don't have your username but this story I I, when I read it I was like oh yeah this story and I, I knew it but it really disturbed me like it it really disturbed me in a way that a story hasn't done in a very long time and I'm not entirely sure why I was so disturbed by this particular story so let's just get into it. It was a good job. She kept telling herself that every day she repeated the same mantra. It was a good job, a decent job, a respectable job. The money was good and the hours were good and it was worth it. It was definitely worth it. She loved watching faces overcome by joy, tears forming in their eyes as they looked at themselves for the first time and saw their dreams reflected back. It rarely happened on the first go and took careful and calm consideration, thought and patience. But when they found the one, the moment was always special, always magical. Sometimes they were alone, but most often they were with family. 
Generations of family gathered together to experience that one moment. When she thought about those moments, she felt that it was worth it. But in the other moments, when she stood alone on the shop floor with that prickling sensation on the back of her neck, she would question everything. She had started working there two years previously and it felt like a dream. She had moved to Chihuahua, Mexico from a small village and had immediately found a job in the shop. Initially, all she had was work. So her world was relatively small, but as she established herself in the city and her confidence grew, she met more and more people and she noticed something odd. Every time someone would ask her where she worked, she would tell them, and there would be a flicker of something on their face. A flicker of confusion. You, you work there? They would say, questioningly. Why? Initially, she was equally as confused. She couldn't figure out why it was such a shock to people that she worked there. It was a good job in a nice shop, right? But as time passed, she began to realise why people had given her those looks. She understood why they couldn't believe that she had chosen to work there. And it was all because of her. Because of it. For Maria, working in a wedding dress shop was the epitome of joy. She loved everything about weddings and revelled in finding people their dream wedding dresses. When she had applied for the job, she was readily and quickly employed by the owner. But no amount of joy could change the feeling she had when she was alone on the shop floor. It had started with the soft pitter-patter of footsteps and the swish of the material of a dress. It would happen when she was alone, when her back was turned. She would feel the temperature drop in the room first and the hair on her arms and on the back of her neck would stand on end, and then she would hear the scurrying footsteps, as though someone was moving around the room behind her, trying to stay out of sight. The first ten or even twenty times, she wheeled around, expecting to see the shop owner or a customer. But the only other person in the room was her. Was it... It felt stupid to even consider her a person because she wasn't a person. It wasn't a person. Not really. And Maria felt ridiculous even considering that a mannequin was somehow moving around the room, but that was what she believed. And that, she came to realise, was what everyone in the town believed. The mannequin had appeared in the bridal shop window on the 25th of March, 1930. And as soon as she appeared, people began talking. Did you see the mannequin in the shop window? It can't possibly be. They wouldn't. They couldn't. At first glance, the mannequin in the window looked perfectly normal. It was a mannequin of a young woman with long brown hair, dressed in a beautiful long-sleeved sequined gown. A veil trailing down her back. But on closer inspection... She bore a striking resemblance to someone that the town had all known. 
Pasquala Esparza was the much-loved daughter of the shop owners. She had fallen in love with a local boy and was due to be married. But tragedy had struck on the day of the wedding, when she was bitten by a black widow spider and died before anybody could help her. The people felt her death keenly. A loss of life so young always seemed to hurt more. And not only that, but the loss of a life on her wedding day seemed so cruel, so needless. But as happens, life moved on. Until one day, soon after La Pasqualita's death, the mannequin appeared in the shop window. Initially, no one really made the connection until people began to really take in what the mannequin looked like. There was no denying it. She bore an uncanny resemblance to La Pasqualita. Her hair seemed to be real sprouting from her head and bore no likeness to the usual synthetic shiny affairs that were generally on the mannequins. More and more people would stop and stare at the mannequin and they realised that her eyebrows weren't painted on like they usually were. They seemed to be made of real hair. Her face was detailed and she had a sense of a real person about her. But it was her hands that really shocked people, hands that bore the grooves and wrinkles of human hands. Tiny lines and blemishes covered them, and the faint shadows of veins crossed the backs of them. The nails curved and embedded into the skin, and the nail beds seemed to be slightly darker, signifying the pooling of blood that seemed to have gone bad. The rumour spread like wildfire that somehow, some way, the Pascalita's parents had embalmed her and she was now immortalised in their shop window, eternally frozen in her wedding dress. When Maria heard the stories, she had at first laughed incredulously. The whole thing was completely ridiculous. Of course it was impossible that they had embalmed her. There was no way but the mannequin had made her feel uneasy even before she knew of the stories. She had heard the rustling and the footsteps and there were numerous times that she had turned her back and when she turned back around, she could have sworn that the mannequin was in a slightly different position, like her head had tilted slightly or her eyes were now focused on a different part of the room or an arm was slightly raised or lowered. After she had heard the stories, she became obsessed with knowing. But days went by and she couldn't pluck up the courage to even approach her. If she got too close to the mannequin, she would feel a panic in her chest and she would break out in a cold sweat. But eventually, one day, she decided enough was enough. She had to see for herself. She stood in front of La Pascalita her heart hammering in her chest, palms clammy, and she took a deep breath. She felt simultaneously terrified and ridiculous. It was just a mannequin, so why was she so frightened by it? Why did it have such a massive impact on her? She bent down slightly to look at the frozen hands and she gulped. They really did look real. Whoever had made this mannequin had paid exceptional attention to the detail on the hands. She had never seen a mannequin that looked like this before. 
and she couldn't begin to fathom how the maker had done it. She straightened up her back and stood face to face with the mannequin. Her eyelashes were long and thick, but definitely not real. Her eyes were glassy, but there was hair in her eyebrows. Again, a detail she had never seen before. And she was no closer to a definitive answer. She hadn't seen anything that alleviated her itching feeling that this thing was somehow the embalmed body of La Pascalita. She wondered about the feet and the legs. Sometimes with mannequins like this, they were actually only a top half and there were no legs. And other times the legs were just shaped bits of plastic devoid of any detail. She again took a deep breath and braced herself as she gripped the bottom of the long white dress and lifted. She had both expected and wanted to see shiny white plastic. But what she did see made her recoil in horror and left her sprawled on the floor staring with her mouth open at La Pascalita. The legs were not shiny white plastic. The legs were mottled and covered in small spidery varicose veins and looked undeniably human. The rumours persisted and grew and it became accepted that La Pascalita had been immortalised in the shop window. But as local legends tend to do, the stories changed and morphed over time. The most accepted story was of course that La Pascalita had been embalmed and turned into a mannequin but there were also stories about a French magician who had bewitched the mannequin and would visit her at night and take her out to do his bidding. There have been sightings of the mannequin and a mysterious figure dancing around the streets of Chihuahua at night, but no one knows how or when this version of the tale began. Perhaps the store's present owner, Mario Gonzalez, likes to keep the legend alive. Twice a week, La Pascalita's outfits are changed, behind drawn curtains as if to preserve her modesty. It is said that only a few close and trusted employees are allowed to dress and undress her. One employee, who had seen her undressed, believes that the body was not that of a mannequin. True believers leave flowers and candles outside the shop and other tributes. Among some, La Pascalita has achieved the status of a saint, drawing a religious following, and miracles have been said to occur at her feet. Mario Gonzalez enjoys the fame and the crowd La Pascalita brings to the store, and he intends to keep it that way. On the window behind which the mannequin stands, there are written the words La Casa de Pascalita or The Home of La Pascalita. When asked whether the bride is really a mummy, he just smiled and shook his head. Is it true? A lot of people believe it is. But I really couldn't say. About a 16-hour drive south of Chihuahua, there lies a small man-made island. And much like La Pascalita, the island has garnered a reputation not just in the local area, but all over the world. The Island of the Dolls is located in the area of Xochimilco, a borough within the Mexican Federal District, which was historically positioned on what was once Lake Xochimilco. 
Xochimilco is a locale well known for its extensive system of canals, which are a relic of the times when the settlements of the Valley of Mexico were interconnected by networks of canals and lakes. The island itself is what is known as a Chinampas, which are artificial islands which were built in the shallow areas of the lake during the pre-Hispanic period as a means of increasing agricultural production. The Chinampas were mounds of earth and mud heaped upon a frame of intertwined juniper branches and tied to the shore. As the island sank, new ones would be built on top, stacking one over the other until a rectangular island was eventually formed and permanently affixed to the bottom of the lake. Upon these islands were grown a variety of crops and they were of great economic value during the times of the Aztec Empire. The artificial islands were so lush that they were also known as floating gardens and the large number of chinampas constructed subsequently contributed to the gradual shrinking of Lake Xochimilco into the canal system seen today. In modern times, most of the chinampas have deteriorated and fallen into disrepair, yet around 5,000 remain and they are popular with tourists who ride along the canals in special gondolas. Indeed, due to its important historical connection to pre-Hispanic Mexico, Xochimilco, with its ancient man-made islands and canals, is deemed a World Heritage Site. However, one of the little islands that all but the most fearless visitors may want to steer clear of is the menacing island of dolls. La Isla de las Muencas is perhaps the most infamous of Xochimilco's islands due to its bizarre history and status as one of the spookiest, most haunted places in Mexico. The story begins in the 1950s with a reclusive loner known as Julian Santana Barrera, who took up residence on an abandoned island where he lived in a hut by himself. After witnessing a young girl drown in a nearby canal, Barrera became convinced that the spirit of the girl was haunting him. He reportedly claimed that he would hear the dead girl singing, giggling and calling to him from over the water, as well as dragging and scratching noises outside of his hut or rapping on the windows when no one else was there. Sometimes he could see her ghostly form through the trees or over the water, hovering about the island at night. Disturbed by these visitations, Barrera's behaviour became increasingly erratic. One day, he saw a doll drift by in the water of the canal and took it as a sign. He fished the doll from the water and hung it up on his island, believing that it would protect him from the wrath of the girl's ghost. It soon became apparent to him that one doll was simply not enough, as he believed the restless spirit was still tormenting him. Barrera became obsessed with collecting more dolls, sometimes even trading vegetables he had grown for more of them in his desperation to appease the angry spirit of the girl. He hung the dolls all over the island, amassing more and more until eventually there were hundreds of the things strewn all over the place, covering the island. Barrera put the dolls everywhere on the ground, propped against trees, tied to tree trunks and fences, and even hanging from the branches like twisted Christmas tree ornaments. It is said that he would often rearrange the dolls and frequently move them into different locations and positions about the island as he saw fit. 
word of mouth spread about the odd hermit on this island surrounded by his creepy collection of dishevelled dolls and local legends began to form. It was said that the dolls would come to life at night and roam the island brutally killing animals and that if one listened carefully the gibbering whispers and giggling of the dolls could be heard as they went about their grim work. It was rumoured that Barrera would talk and sing to the dolls, caring for them as if they were real children. It was also said that the dolls became infused with evil as soon as they were put on the island and that they were all connected by some insidious supernatural force. This went on for years, until one day Barreras was found dead, floating face down in one of the canals. Chillingly, it was the very same canal the little girl had died in all those years ago. The same girl whose ghost had slowly driven Barrera insane. Local legend has it that Barrera's ghost continued to inhabit the island, haunting it along with the dolls. Today, the island's dolls are still there. They are scattered haphazardly all over the island, strung up everywhere, with their dull, wide eyes gazing lifelessly over their domain. Over the years, they have deteriorated to the point that most are in various states of disrepair and many are filthy and decrepit, all of which makes them much more scarier and further fuels the menacing ambiance of the island. The dark superstition and folklore associated with the island showed no signs of abating with Barrera's death. People say that when visiting the island, it is a good idea to bring a doll with you to appease the dark spirits there. As soon as the new doll arrives, it is believed to connect with the others through whatever black magic it is that courses through them. In addition, Barrera himself is still said to survey the place, watching all who visit from the shadows. The stories of the paranormal pervading the island of dolls have also captured the attention of those looking for evidence of such goings-on, with the TV show Destination Truth launching an expedition to the island. Barrera's nephew explained to the crew that indeed the dolls seemed to be charged with some eerie supernatural energy and that the island was haunted, or cursed, or both. The crew were not disappointed as they managed to experience quite a few strange happenings during their stay. Strange dragging sounds were heard on the roof of the island shack as well as other creepy noises and bumps in the dark. Sensors for ghostly energy also were going wild with readings, and the highlight of the show came when one of the dolls appeared to open its eyes of its own accord when asked to do so. The entire incident was caught on camera, and say what you will about its authenticity or whether it constitutes evidence of the paranormal, but there is no denying that the footage is exceptionally creepy and disturbing. Such spooky stories have apparently done nothing to stem the flow of curious visitors looking for a peek at the macabre. Over the years, the island of dolls has truly become one of the most famous islands of Xochimilco. Based purely on its grim reputation and bizarre history, the island's current tenant, Barrera's own nephew, Anastasio Velasquez, says that hundreds of people flock to see the island and its dolls every year. For the truly brave nowadays, it is relatively easy to book a tour to see the island, and it is easily accessible by ferry or gondola. The visitors may come and go, but the dolls remain, 
twisted bodies strung up on the trees and beady eyes staring at, perhaps even watching their lair, as they have for so long and will likely continue to do so until they've turned to dust. Perhaps Barrera is there too among his slowly decomposing dolls, forever to care for them like his own children. I have so many thoughts. I've got thoughts galore about these two stories. Uh, firstly, I need to say that the Island of the Dolls section came from a Mysterious Universe article from 2014 by Brent Swanser, who is actually the love of my life. He may not know it, but he is. The link is obviously in the description of this episode, as is the link to that clip from Destination Truth, where the doll's eye opens when they are doing their investigation. But let's rewind and go back to La Pascalitas. Now, obviously, I apologise if my pronunciation is horrendous it is very likely that it has been horrendous the whole way through this episode as I do with all these things I do google how to pronounce these things but sometimes my mouth just doesn't make the noise or I don't put the intonation on the right syllable so I apologize if my um, pronunciation is all over the place so the story of La Pascalitas right do I believe it no but it also disturbed me a huge amount and I I don't really know why. I think part of it is because there is a very famous true crime story of a man named Dr. Carl Tanzler. He fell in love with a patient who he was treating for tuberculosis. And when she died, he he took her body. Her name was Maria. And he took her body and preserved her in, in his house. It's a really, really dark story and it's a story of kind of obsession. You know, she died of natural causes. He would go and see her body all the time and then eventually took her body home and like tried to um, preserve her corpse. And it's not the only time that that has happened, which is, I mean, it's an an awful story. But it really, it really freaked me out. And this story of La Pascalita really freaked me out. And I wonder if it's that connection. And I mean, embalmed bodies do exist all over the world. Um, Like, you know, there, there's embalmed bodies that you can go and see in like the Vatican. There's various politicians are embalmed, people who are said to be saints, whatever. Like they exist all over the world and you can go and see bodies that are in relatively good condition that have been dead for many, many, many years. And those embalmed bodies exist in strictly controlled conditions. So they are, you know, that the conditions are really monitored. And there are people who say that it potentially because Chihuahua in Mexico is so dry, the climate is so dry, that it's almost the perfect condition to keep an embalmed body. I don't know. I think it is just an urban legend, like a, a story, a lore of that town that has been passed on as a really good story I feel sorry for the original owners whose daughter La Pascalita is said to have been because they were accused for years and years of embalming their daughter and putting her on display and they denied it they were like no that's not true that's not that's not what's happened at all and the current owner has obviously perpetuated the rumour because it seems as though it's it's good for business. So it seems to be very common practice for women of the area to go in and buy the wedding dress that La Pascalita is wearing at the time because they think it's good look. 
Like there are people who believe that La Pascalita is a saint, that she has the ability to perform miracles, that she, you know, moves around the shop, that she was bewitched by this French magician and that they dance around the streets together. Like the story is rich and vibrant and powerful. And obviously it's kept going through all these years. And at the end of the day, it is, it's very good marketing. Apparently, according to some articles that I read, La Pascalita has been attacked a number of times by women who've gone into the shop. So women have gone in to try on dresses and then attacked the mannequin. And there also apparently has been a police investigation done, like genuinely, because it is illegal to display a corpse, apparently. And the police decided to do an investigation to kind of figure it out once and for all. And they said, no, it's it's just a mannequin. It's not a real person. I would highly recommend, however, that you look up pictures of La Pascalita because particularly her hands, they are incredibly lifelike. And I have seen a lot of dead bodies in my time and they do often take on quite a a doll-like quality, especially if there's been a detailed post-mortem. Look, she's just weird looking. Honestly, do look her up like... Her hands in particular are like the the level of detail is exceptional. I read somewhere else that she the mannequin was brought in from Paris and had been like painstakingly made and each hair had been like individually placed into her head, etc, etc. So, you know, I would well believe that she is just a really detailed mannequin, but she's very detailed. I can totally see why people were like, is that real? And she does bear a resemblance to... If the, I mean, if the pictures that I saw online really are the, the daughter that died on her wedding day, which is incredibly tragic, she does bear a resemblance to that girl who died on her wedding day. So I can fully see how the rumour has been perpetuated over the years. And I can fully see how it would also be good for business to keep that rumour going, especially if people think wearing the same wedding dress is good luck or if they, you know, see her as some sort of miracle worker it's going to draw people into the shop for sure. And let's let's move on to the the island of dolls, which is incredibly famous at this point. I'm pretty sure Ghost Adventures did an island of dolls episode. Like obviously, like I said, Destination Truth did. I think the story of the island of dolls is just really sad, to be honest. It's been highly requested for a really long time that I do an episode about it. And it, I just, I just, I do just find it incredibly sad. Regardless of what happened, I don't know if the story of the ghost of the little girl is true. As in, I don't know. I couldn't find kind of where the original sources for these stories are. Or if it was just another kind of word of mouth local legend that's been passed around. I think if there was a little girl drowned that was witnessed by this man who was living on the island... And he collected all these dolls because he wanted to appease her spirit. That's incredibly sad. I think that if there was no ghost of a little girl or there was no little girl that was drowned, it's still incredibly sad. This man was living on his own on the island and was collecting these dolls to appease something, to maybe indulge in this fantasy that they were his children or this delusion that they were real children. He was caring for them like his own. I just think the whole story is really sad. But look, is it freaky? Absolutely fucking yes. It is very freaky. Again, look up pictures of the island of the dolls. They are. It, it, it's not a pleasant place. <laughs> I will say that. And I'm not somebody who gets freaked out by dolls. I don't, you know, they don't, they don't particularly bother me. Porcelain dolls, any kind of dolls. They don't freak me out. But this island, 
I think I'd be unnerved if I was there in the middle of the night and that Destination Truth video regardless like Brent Swanser said in the article regardless of whether or not you think it's real evidence of paranormal or whatever it's definitely disturbing and it is definitely disturbing it's a freaky video thank you so much for listening to today's episode uh this island of dolls story today came from a mysterious universe article from 2014 by brent swanser the links in the description also the links to that destination truth video to all of the resources about la pascalitas are all in the description as well if you would like to send in your own spooky story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast.gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for extra content, you can sign up to Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next time.